Take your Bibles this morning, turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we're going to begin reading in verse 14. I'm going to speak to you today on the topic, Lessons from a Tragedy. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. As always, if you do not have a Bible, and I always encourage you to carry your Bibles to church so you can keep me honest, but if you don't have one, grab one in the pew or from the seat in front of you, and uh, it'll be the same version I'm reading from, and you can keep me honest that way. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. Now King Herod heard of him. For his name had become well known, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, It is Elijah, and others said, It is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that even horrible stories, tragic stories that have taken place in the lives of great believers have lessons for us. And so I pray today as we look at this tragedy that took place here, uh, the death, uh, the, the martyrdom, the beheading of John the Baptist, speak to us, teach us, we pray, and uh, encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We skipped verses 7 through 13 between last lesson and this one. Uh, in those verses, Jesus sent out his disciples to spread the good news. Uh, they preached the gospel, they performed miracles, and we're going to see when we get down to verse number 30, uh, that they're going to return from that trip and report back. And so we're going to skip it for now, and we'll deal with it when we get there uh, the next time. It was while they were on this little soul-winning mission that he had sent them out on that the interlude we read about here today takes place. And actually, the only part that really takes place during that time is verses 14 through 16, where Herod, because everybody's out preaching, Jesus is doing miracles, all these things are taking place. Herod hears what's happening with Jesus, and he feared that it was really John the Baptist returned from the dead. That's the only thing that really took place here. His conscience was affected, was bothering him over John's murder. The remainder of everything we read was a flashback explaining why he would come up with that ridiculous scenario, why he would believe 
that what was taking place with Jesus and the disciples was an indication that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. The tragedy of John's death is mentioned here. It's also mentioned in uh, Matthew chapter 14 and Luke chapter 9. But Mark's version is far more detailed. Here we learn of the people involved. There was Herod, obviously. There was Herodias, his wife. There was Salome, the daughter. And then there was John. And I think we can learn from each. And so let's, uh, let's see if we can learn that today. Let's see what we can learn from what God has to say about uh, tragedies such as are described here. Let's first of all think about the women in this particular passage because there are lessons here from two very wicked women. Herodias. Herodias was the reason for John being in prison. And Herodias was the reason for John being beheaded by her husband, Herod. She hated John because he preached the word of God and because he denounced her relationship with Herod as sinful. And so rather than listen to what God had to say, she was incensed at the preacher and turned all her venom on him. Who was Herodias? Interesting person in history. The Bible Knowledge Commentary tells us a little bit about it. Herod imprisoned John because of Herodias, who was an ambitious woman who was his second wife. Now, you're going to have to listen very carefully here, very closely to catch all this. Herod had first married a daughter of the Arabian king, Aretas IV. Then he became enamored with his half-niece, Herodias, who was the daughter of his half-brother, Aristobulus, who was married to Herod's half-brother, Philip, who was her half-uncle. All this according to Josephus in the Antiquities of the Jews. They had a daughter named Salome. Herod divorced his wife in order to marry Herodias, who had divorced Philip. John had repeatedly denounced that nonsense as being unlawful. And, of course, anybody who can read the Old Testament would know that it was a violation in every way of Jewish law. Kind of reads like some of the folly that takes place among the Hollywood elite today, doesn't it? Maybe we didn't have to go to Hollywood. Maybe it's right down the street. I don't know. It's a twisted mess. R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this, sums it up a little bit more briefly. He says, Herodias was the daughter of Herod's half-brother Aristobulus and was therefore Herod's niece. Further, when he met her in Rome, she was the wife of another of his half-brothers, Herod Philip, and therefore she was his sister-in-law. And so he's married to his niece and his sister-in-law. And John said, no, 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 that's not lawful. And then there is Salome. Salome is Herod's, Herodias's teenaged daughter, we believe teenaged at this time, who danced before Herod and his guests in verse number 22. Mark doesn't name her. Uh, matter of fact, I don't think she's named in the other Gospels either. But Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Jews, is the one who tells us her name was Salome. This young girl danced. That doesn't sound too bad, does it? But this was not artistic ballet or ballroom dancing. This was sensuous dancing before a room filled with drunken men. These kind of dances were not normally performed by women of rank or station or class. Usually, prostitutes would have been brought in for this type of dancing. And so this reveals to us the character of both Salome and even more, I think, of her wicked mother, who apparently put her up to this very behavior. And we'd be disgusted enough if that's all the farther it went, if we were just talking about dancing here. But that was only the beginning. When Herod, no doubt inebriated beyond control, watched the dance to its conclusion, 
he rashly promised to reward Salome for her performance. Anything you want, girl, up to half my kingdom, he said in verse number 23. Now, Herod was not a king. He wanted to be a king. He called himself a king, but he was not a king. Therefore, he had no kingdom to give. But what he was doing was making a rash promise using, you know, commonly used phrase of the day, which simply meant extreme generosity. He was simply promising he would reward her richly. What do you want? Whatever it is, I'll give you. And so look at what happens. Salome runs to her mother and asks what she should ask for in verse number 24. And Herodias asked for John the Baptist's head. And John, who had done nothing wrong, he had rather just simply shared the truth with her and Herod, would be beheaded at the whim of a wicked woman and her equally wicked daughter. And notice here, Salome's not innocent in this. Salome added her own little flourish at the end. Did you notice this? So Herodias asked for the head of John the Baptist, and when she went, she said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That was her part, her little touch at the end. I think there's a few lessons that we come to, at least come to my mind as I think about these two vile women. One lesson is that justice will not always be served here on this earth. Justice will not always be served here on this earth. Whether we consider evil Jezebel's plot to assassinate Naboth and steal his vineyard. You read about that in First Kings. Or, or godly Joseph's imprisonment when Potiphar's spurned wife accused him of crimes he didn't commit. Or, or, or uh, Stephen's bloody death for simply preaching the gospel. Or here, John the Baptist's death. Whatever we want to consider, the lesson is always the same. There's not always justice in this life. You know, we may face trial simply for being a Christian. We may be ridiculed. We may be marginalized. It's increasingly common for people in the United States to face legal ramifications simply for standing for Christ. Some, even America, have been threatened with job loss. Some have gone to prison in America because of their faith. And, of course, many around the world face far worse, far worse. There are more people martyred for Christ now than there have ever been. And so always, as believers, we must remember that our reward is not in this life. Our reward is in that which is to come. The writer to the Hebrews said, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God in Hebrews 4.9, but that rest is future. It is not now. John was one minute in prison, the next in glory. He was one minute suffering the terror of beheading, and the next the joy of seeing his Savior. For John, the reward was great, but it was future. It was not here. And whether or not Herodias or Salome ever experienced justice for their crime on earth, they too would one day face their God and would face justice from the one who is eternally and perfectly just. That's one lesson. Another lesson that arises from these wicked women is that people often turn on believers even though the believer is not the real target. You think she really hated John as a person? You think she just didn't like the way he looked? What was it about it? It wasn't John. John wasn't the real target, even though she thought he was. The man was not the problem. The message was the problem. Jesus was the real target. God was the real target. My Bible tells me when a Christian is reproached, Jesus is reproached. He made that clear to Saul of Tarsus when he met him on the road to Damascus. And he said, why are you persecuting me? When a Christian is reproached, 
Jesus is reproached. When we preach and witness and some reject our witness, they're not rejecting us, but rather Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, he who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Those might be some. There might be other lessons, but those are some that come to my mind from these two wicked women. Let's think about this wonderful prophet. Lessons from this wonderful prophet. Who was this man who so incensed Herodias, so filled the mind of Herod? Who was he? If we listen to Jesus' description of John the Baptist, John the Baptist was an important man indeed. Maybe the most important man who's ever lived, if if Jesus' words are true. And are they? Of course they are. Assuredly, I say to you, Jesus said, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. And yet this great prophet, this man Christ praised so highly, was here viciously murdered after a period of languishing in prison. All for simply doing right. He did what God told him to do. He preached what God told him to preach. He was imprisoned for it. And he was executed for it. Imagine the thoughts that might have run through his brain as he heard the door to the prison open and saw the executioner walk in with his sword hanging from his hand. Do you think at that moment John thought God was fair? What do you think he thought? Some years ago, Boxing heavyweights Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson squared off in a heavyweight battle. Perhaps you remember this famous fight. During that fight, for some reasons known only to him, Mike Tyson bit off a portion of Evander Holyfield's ear. I still have that on tape somewhere at home. I should watch that again. But afterwards, after the fight was over, Holyfield went on to win the fight. And after the fight was over, uh, there was a post-fight news conference or something, and Holyfield is standing there answering questions, blood streaming down the side of his face. And somebody asked him about that particular event. And Evander Holyfield said, God is good all the time, even with the lumps and the bumps. It's one of my favorite quotes that I've ever heard. Uh, Do you think that John the Baptist believed that right about now? There was a movie that came out not too long ago called God's Not Dead. Very similar uh, phrase that is used throughout that movie where one of the heroes of the movie repeatedly says, God is good all the time. And someone else looks back at him and said, and all the time, God is good. You think John the Baptist felt that way right now? He had fearlessly testified and preached before small and great. He was not too big to preach to the common man, and he was not too small to preach to the uncommon man. He preached fearlessly to religious leaders, to scribes, to Pharisees and Sadducees. Our text here indicates he had absolutely no problem preaching to the highest political powers in the realm. There was no one higher than Herod uh, that, that would fit that description, I don't think. John had stayed true to his calling and his mission. He was not a quitter. When faced with imprisonment, which probably was extremely hard for him. I mean, remember, he lived in the desert, out in the open. That's how he lived. And now here he was imprisoned. It must have been hard on him. When faced with that, he may have experienced discouragement. We know, actually, that he did. But he didn't quit. Matthew described his discouraged heart. He said, when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? He was discouraged, doubting, wondering. Here he was doing just what God wanted him to do, or so he thought, and he shut up in prison. He silenced, or so it felt, and a sentence of death hung over him. It would have been easy to wonder in that cell what God was doing. 
It would have been easy. It would have been natural that he would begin to question and wonder and grow discouraged. But notice what our text says. Our text says that in the darkness of his imprisonment, he still had one person to share the truth with. Did you notice this? Herod! Herod! He's still preaching to Herod throughout this whole time. Herod had imprisoned him to satisfy Herodias, according to verse 17. But Herod continued to listen to him, according to verse number 20. Now, there's, that's a hard verse to understand there, at least in our New King James Bible. The phrase, when he heard him, he did many things, is confusing. It probably would be better translated as, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. That's the way the ESV or the NIV or the New American Standard would translate it. So in other words, Herod is hearing John. He's thinking about the things John said. Even in prison, God is using John to try and reach Herod. And so John kept right on preaching, even though he had an audience of one. So many of God's servants have seen the inside of prison cells. Paul and Silas experienced it. We read about it in Acts chapter 16 where the prisoners heard them because they turned their imprisonment into a prayer meeting and a song fest. Joseph experienced it. He continued to serve God uh, and others while he was in there. Daniel experienced it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced it. Paul actually experienced it more than once. And several of our uh, letters that we have in our New Testament were written from within a prison cell by the Apostle Paul. And now here's John. And just like these others, he didn't quit. He didn't quit when the executioner stood in the doorway. I recall a movie adaptation of this whole thing, and of course I don't know if it's true or not, but I found it interesting. I never got it out of my head. It depicted this very scene, and it showed the executioner walk into the doorway and stand there with his sword. And then you heard, you did not see, because the camera moved away. You heard John yell, Repent! You heard the slinging of the sword, and then silence. Of course, there's nothing in the Bible to back that up. I don't know if that's true or not. But knowing the character of this man, it would not surprise me at all if he died preaching. Because he did not quit. Dr. Tom Malone was my pastor and my mentor when I lived in New Jersey, or not New Jersey, in Michigan. And he, also, he used to often say, never, never quit. And it was a thought that was burned on the hearts of everybody who was one of his students. Never, never quit. There is simply never a good reason. For quitting on God. And if there's a lesson from John the Baptist, maybe that's the, maybe that's the number one lesson. Well, one more thing. Let's look at some lessons from this weak king, Herod. Herod. Let me read you who he was. He was Herod Antipas I, son of Herod the Great. Herod Antipas was not a king. He was a tetrarch, which means he ruled a fourth part of his father's kingdom. He was the ruler of Galilee and Perea under the aegis of Rome. And he ruled from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39. Mark called him a king, which is what Herod wanted to be called. But in reality, godless Herod was only a tetrarch, the ruler, we, we might say a governor, the ruler of a fourth part of the nation. And when Herod the Great died, the Romans divided his territory among his three sons, and Antipas was made tetrarch of Perea and Galilee. Herod. I don't know about you, but I think Herod is a tragic figure here. Do you, do you, do you, do you feel that way? I confess I don't feel the slightest bit sorry for Herodias and Salome. I'd like to squash them like a bug. I, I think there's not a, a thing good about them. They're just vile, wicked people. Not a sliver of goodness in either. 
And I certainly don't feel the slightest bit of sadness for John, who after faithfully serving his Lord was ushered into the portals of glory. And there's no reason to feel sorry for John. But Herod? Herod, he had such opportunity here. He had so many chances to do the right thing. He had so many opportunities to turn his life around for God, and yet he went wrong at every single turn. Just a few lessons we can learn from him. One lesson would be the danger of making rash vows, for he certainly made one here, did he not? His silly, stupid promise to Salome, probably induced by drink, but it was definitely a stupid promise. It was definitely a rash vow. Reminds us of Jephthah and Judges. Jephthah, whose daughter paid the price for his silly and stupid vow in Judges chapter 11. There's nothing wrong with making a vow. There's nothing wrong with making a promise. Sometimes those things are good. Wedding vows, for example, I promise you my faithfulness. That's a vow that's honorable and right and ought to be observed and kept. Paul made some sort of vow to God as recorded in Acts 18. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea for he had taken a vow. We don't know what it was. Some kind of promise he made to God. Jacob made a vow to faithfully tithe, give a tenth to God. There are many examples of that in Scripture. And so the fact that he made a vow is not, not in itself wrong. But if you're going to make a vow, you better be able to do it. The Bible is clear that vows are not to be taken lightly. Numbers chapter 30, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy chapter 23, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. And so one lesson from this weak king is he, he should have kept his mouth shut. And not made the stupid vow that he made. But another lesson, and I think maybe even a greater one, is the danger of fearing men. Look at verse 20. We read in verse 20 and we learn that Herod feared John. The entire reason John's imprisoned was because Herod feared his wife. Verses 17 through 19. And Herod had John beheaded because he feared his guests and what they would think. Verse number 26. So he feared a man of God, he feared his guests, he feared his wife, he feared her teenage daughter, he feared everybody except God, who alone he should have feared. And verse 26 gives us a glimpse into the terrible agony that was going on in Herod's mind right here. You don't really see this, but let me, let me share it with you and then you will. He didn't want to execute John. He knew it was terribly, terribly wrong. He was exceedingly sorry, the verse says right there. You see that? That's the Greek word paralupos, which is used only one other time in the New Testament. It's used to describe the pain Jesus felt in Gethsemane. That's the agony that Herod was going through right here. Every fiber of his being was screaming out it was wrong to murder John. But he did so anyway because he feared what others would think if he didn't. R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this, says, What a tragedy. Herod's conscience had begun to live, and he stifled it because of what he feared others would think. Realizing what was at stake, this seems incredible to us. But there are many today who are doing just the same thing. How many people's consciences have been awakened to eternal things in their own sinful plight, and yet they have buried it all because of what they feared their friends or family or fiancé or spouse or fellow students would think. 
Some spend their entire lives basing their decisions on what other people think. There are politicians who for 20 years have not made one decision according to conscience, but rather according to what they think the people want. There are business people who spend their entire day reckoning their decisions with a visualized corporate ladder before them. There are students who sell their souls to escape ridicule. More people than we realize have lost eternity because they feared what others think. Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. One of the lessons is he feared men and lost it all because of it. And then there's a third lesson. And I think this might be the greatest lesson of all from this week, King, and that's the danger of not responding to the truth. The danger of not responding. Uh, he had heard the message often in verse number 20. I think it indicates there he'd heard it more than once. I believe the Scripture indicates he was greatly convicted by the message, that phrase that we mentioned a minute ago, that he was greatly perplexed or puzzled or disturbed by what he was hearing seems to indicate that. He was under conviction. He heard. He listened. He listened more than once. He was convicted of the truth, but he did not respond. He did not respond to the truth. In Greece, hundreds of years before Christ, the philosopher Plato speculated that if only a person knew the good, he would do it. Herod's act showed how wrong Plato was. It's not enough to know what is good. It's not enough to believe the right things. A person must commit himself to what he knows is right. A person must trust God enough to believe that he exists and that it is God's opinion that counts, that his will must guide ours. Herod believed John was a prophet. He even liked to listen to John's teaching, just as the people of Israel believed that Jesus was a prophet and crowded around to hear him speak and to witness his miracles. But when the time for decision arrived, mere belief must be transformed into faith. There must be commitment. A person must not look around and try to please those who are watching. A person must face the fact that only God's opinion counts. And in the firm conviction that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, that person must commit himself to what is right. Sadly, his lack of response lost him all further opportunity. There's only one other time that I'm aware of that we hear about Herod Antipas. Well, at least this is the last time we hear about Herod Antipas. It's when Pilate sent Jesus to him on the night of his trials. You remember that story? Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. And then he questioned him with many words. But he, Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Notice that there was now no interest in what Jesus had to say. He hoped he might see some, some show from him. He might see some miracle from him. But now, at this point, there was no longer an interest. There was also, horrifyingly, no interest from Jesus toward him. He answered him, Nothing. He had been given every opportunity. He had been given this wonderful opportunity to turn to God through John, and he had ignored it and silenced it, and that was the last opportunity. Now he stood eyeball to eyeball with the Savior, and he felt no conviction at all. And Jesus' silence spoke volumes. He wouldn't listen to John. You wouldn't listen to him. That was your chance. Nothing more will be said to you. 
Warren Wiersbe said Jesus would not even speak to this adulterer and murderer, let alone please him by doing a miracle. Herod warns us what, or illustrates for us what the writer of the Proverbs warned about. Whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. What's all this have to do with New Year's? What's all it have to do with the first Lord's Day in 2017? And I think it's very simply this. What does the future hold for you and for me? We can count on some things that we absolutely know will be true. We can count on the fact that some of us will certainly face tragedy in 2017. Some who are happy and healthy today may well experience the sorrow of sickness and pain. Hard times do come, even to Christians, for our reward is not now, but future. So let us resolve that even if such tragedy does come to our life, that we face it like John, that we face it recognizing that we are victorious and that our reward is yet future, and that we will trust and serve and not quit until the very last breath. And some of us will face the decision of whether to listen to God or not, as Herod did in this moment of tragedy. Some will need to decide whether to respond to his truth or not. Some may have listened to him all throughout 2016 and maybe even farther back than that, and not yet responded. Maybe 2017 is the year when you do that. May God help us learn from the evil response of Herodias, the pitiful response of Herod. Let us resolve when God speaks, we will listen, and we will trust, and we will obey.